0: guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club podcast. If you're listening to this on our regular For the Love podcast feed, welcome. This is a sneak peek into every incredible bit of fun we have behind the scenes at the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, which we would absolutely love to have you. We have a seat for you. Come join us. It'll be the best gift you give yourself. You can find out everything you need to know at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. Okay, you guys. We loved it. Elizabeth Acevedo is this month's author and she wrote this incredible novel called Clap When You Land. So, Clap When You Land was two firsts for us in the book club. Number one, it's the first YA book that we've ever read together. Although Elizabeth did tell me that by the data, she said approximately 40% of the readers of YA, of the YA genre, are grown women. (laughs) So apparently we're not that special. We're in the 40%. But so not only did we read our first YA book, but it was written like in verse, not rhyming verse, but just like poetry sort of prose, but in a novel. So a bunch of us, of course, in book club were like, well, when I first opened it, I was like, I don't know. I'm not sure about the structure. This is really different than what I'm used to, but that only lasted for like three pages. Cause it just immediately, you're just into the story. And then the structure actually becomes like a really special part of the, the whole experience because, well, I just, I'm going to steal her thunder, but the way she structured each narrator between the sisters between Camino and Yahira is written a little differently. Camino always gets three lines in a verse, Yahira gets two. Camino's sentence structure is longer and wordier, a little bit more fitting to the Dominican, and Yahira's sentence structure is shorter, more staccato, more fitting to the New Yorker. Anyway, she's like this brilliant writer, not just in story and plot, but in structure and like literary tools. I read Clap When You Land because it was getting a lot of buzz. You know, I've got young readers. I've had young adult readers. I have YA readers. And so I frequently am gotten eared in tune to what is circulating among their community. And that's when Clap When You Land hit my radar. So I read it in one sitting and I told the team, I think this is a It's just a little bit of a gamble, but not really because I actually know our community and I know know everyone's going to love this book. They might have to get over one little hurdle or two. And then once they do, they'll actually love the hurdle. So Clap When You Land was immediately put into rotation for book club. I wanted it in here as soon as we could have it. Let me tell you about Elizabeth real quick before we get into the interview with this darling person. Elizabeth Acevedo, well, she's obviously like, a New York Times bestselling author, big, 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 big bestselling. And a ton of her writing is inspired by her Afro-Dominican roots. So she was born and raised in New York City. She's the only daughter of Dominican immigrants. So, I mean, there's the intersection right there. She's got a BA in Performing Arts from George Washington University and then an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Maryland. Oh gosh, her accolades are so long. She's been a fellow of CAVE. I don't know how to say this. I think it's Canem and a participant in the Callaloo Writers Workshop. and. She's So she's like brainiac smart, but not only that, she's crazy talented. Like her book, The Poet X, won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, the Michael L. Prince Award, the Pura Belpre Award, the Carnegie Medal, the Boston Globe Horn Book Award, the Walter Award. I mean, my gosh, that was on The Poet X. Too many, too many, out of this world. And on top of all that, her book that we read, Clap When You Land, which we'll be talking about today, was a Boston Globe Hornbook honor book, and a carcass finalist. <laughs> she's just good. Like she's, she's a gifted, like special, unique writer, which is so fantastic. Like in the world of a million novels and stories, just when you think everything's been done, you stumble on somebody like Elizabeth, who is just an absolute original. I just, I told her all this and more, you know how I like to gush, but I only gush when I am telling the truth. And so she is absolutely delightful. You are going to love her. You're going to, she tells us a few things about the book that you're going to love to hear too. How it was originally written, which is not at all the way you and I read it. Some characters that she rotated out because they weren't right. Even having written their whole story. It's fascinating to hear her process. So you're going to love it. You're going to love it. So happy to share this conversation with absolutely extraordinary human person, Elizabeth Acevedo. So happy to meet you. Same, same. So, so happy to meet you. Girl, your book is so beloved in our little community. Like it's only August 12th and it's our August book and almost everybody's through it. Like normally we're dragging each other over the finish line, like finish it. It's the end of the month. But the like the common refrain is like, I sat down to start it. I never got back up until I finished it. And that was exactly how I read it. It's amazing.
1: Well, that's awesome. I appreciate that. I do think that the verse helps people stay in it. The rhythm propels you, hopefully. If done I right.
0: I mean, absolutely. And I just kind of want to jump right into it because. I'm going to talk about that first. I want to talk about the way that you structured it. I mean, obviously poetry is your genre. This is, this is meaningful to you. This is what you do, but I can't remember the last novel that I sort of read in verse or in prose or however. So I'd love to hear
1: you talk about just the literary structure, first of all. Yeah. Oh, well, that's the best, you know, kind of compliment you could give because I honestly believe that a novel in verse has to teach you how to read it, right? It like has to kind of say, you're here now, like stop in, I'm going to take you and after, you know, after a little bit, you're going to learn to dance. Don't worry. Like I got you, learn the stuff. But it really is, I think people getting over that initial one, fear of poetry, which I attribute to a lot of us learning poetry in ways that are very didactic and that are like, you know, you have to know, all means and you have to be able to say what well, Walt Whitman's intentions were versus you know poetry is is music, is gossip, it's how we talk, it's it's how um I think humans make sense of things. It's about the human experience in the you know fewest words possible. And once people allow that to be their definition of poetry or one of the new definitions of poetry I think it becomes easier because the novel doesn't ask you like what do you think page seven means it, it's saying like let let yourself feel let yourself the images wash over you let the music be a part of like the experience and and that's enough and whatever that re- the story for you works, you know, and, and I, on my end, I'm working really hard to give those clues of, okay, you're going to get a tercet with Camino, you'll get couplets with Hira, because I think in the Dominican Republic, we talk with more phrases and sayings, and it takes us a little longer to get to the point, so tercets, she's a little more long-winded. Yajira's from New York, clipped. it's let's go, so she's staccato, Right. And so I'm doing this work in the background, but you know, if you catch that, that's great. But if you don't, it it should still be a really rich experience. Yeah.
0: It still carries you right along the wave. And I really appreciate you saying that because I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a writer and obviously language, words, books, literature has always meant a lot to me, but I said, I probably said for 20 years that I'm not good at poetry. That I don't understand poetry, that poetry makes me feel like not smart. And it's because of the way I was taught it. It is exactly what you just said that it didn't get to just be beautiful. It didn't get to just take me somewhere special. I had to dissect it.
1: Yeah, it was math. And yeah, it was like it's math. Kind of like, there's a thing being proven, and you have to figure out the variables. You have to figure yeah. out. Yeah. Yes. Versus you know, you're bringing part of yourself too. Yeah. I cut you off.
0: (sighs) No, I'm just so happy to hear you say that because that is just a trope that I said about myself for a really long time. And I'm like, no, I, I think that the part of me that wanted the poetry to just be beautiful, just got squashed in the, Teaching of it, and so I love that it gets to be something new to me as an adult, and I just get to love it. And when I kind of take my foot off the gas of absolutely trying to dissect it, it teaches me its own self, like you've done okay, and i'm I'm so curious, like when you started talking to your publisher or about Clap when you Land, and you said, "Guys, here's my idea. I want to write it in verse." Was everybody immediately onboarded, or did you have to kind of fight for this format?
1: I was, I was lucky. My debut novel is in verse, and it did very well. It got a lot of interest. and so I think my editor was kind of like, "Yes, <laughs> like give us more." There is a thing you are doing that feels special and is a, of a particular point of view, and so we're down. I think when I when I wrote the entire novel from one point of view and then came back and was like. So, guys, it's going to be a dual narrative with two sisters There was maybe a little bit more like, oh, okay, this is not, you know, what we know you know how to do, but I'm really lucky. My editor is very trusting of my talents and and I think believes in me, you know, that I can pull all of my wild ideas off. And so she was kind of like, all right, you know, like I'm here and she's a reader of poetry, which is helpful because I I'll have that support, but people were on board. I mean, I think I was probably the most hesitant on you know, do both characters speak in verse? Will it feel natural? like will it sound too much the same? Like okay, I have to figure out ways to make their voices distinctive for myself so they're distinctive for readers. So I was maybe more hesitant than than my publishing team, which so what you were saying is that your whole first
0: draft was only Caminos. Perspective
1: was only yeah. Oh, oh, oh! oh. (laughs) Entirely set in New York, and then she learns, you know, about Camino. And I wrote the whole thing, and I was having—I was at a writing retreat actually with the writer E.B. Zaboy, who wrote Pride and American Street and Black Enough. And I'm telling her about this book. She's Haitian. And I'm like, no, but there's something off. Like, I just the heart of it. I I have the the novel. I have the plot points, but there's something missing. And she just looked at me. Right, we share an island, and so we both have these these very similar stories that we know of parents and family structures. And she's like, we need the other sister. But the island sister always gets silence in general. Like, we need the other sister. And I tell you that very night, I mud which is how the book opens. And Camino hijacked the novel. Like then she became the character I was upset with. You heard me. <laughs> I just assumed sure. that
0: she was the original narrator and you added Yahira. Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh. oh, no, she took all over and I was like, oh my God, she's so much better. Like she's so compelling and I love her. And I'm tender towards her and I'm afraid for her. And so then I had to lift Yahira to kind of the same level of, of interest. But it was... It was a very different writing experience than any other book so far. How long did it take you? Oh, I've maybe started drafting this in 2017. I tend to write a book, put it away and draft something else and then go back. So my process is always I'm working on something. So I'm pretty sure this was in between maybe with the fire on high being written. So yeah, 2016, I wrote a draft very quickly. So maybe in a few months, I had written a draft, this draft that I talked to Evie about, and then I went back in. So, you know, depending on how you see it, a couple of months or a couple of years.
0: <laughs> I want to talk about sort of the origin story of the entire novel, The in your mind as its creator. I mean, obviously your own personal history, clearly, but like, did the character come to you? Did the story come to you? Was it lifted out of the pages of your own experience, your own family,
1: or was it maybe all of it? Yeah, no, you know, I percolate a lot. I'm definitely out of this sitting with things. And I've known since I was pretty young, I wanted to write about flight AA587, which was a real life event that happened in 2001, two months and a day after the attack on the World Trade Center. And so as a New Yorker, I had very stark kind of representations of how mass tragedies could be handled, of how communities could be held, of what meant to be united through tragedy, but also how, certain tragedies are are considered more important you know and a flight full of dominions going to the big republic on a random day in november was important up until it was determined that it wasn't you know it wasn't terrorism and once it was pilot error and mechanical failure i think those of us in the community very much were like these are still our folks like i know god down the street and who passed you know you know my my friend's father who passed i like we these are our people we see the vigils in the streets but on um, on the larger scale of getting support getting counseling getting like that wasn't at play in the way it had been two months prior and i understand right we're not here comparing tragedies but just that for me there was a a forgetting that happened that really important to say, no, like, I, I don't want to forget. I want to look at, consider some of these stories. And it was in doing research that, that I found out, oh, people had secrets and had things happening in their lives that came out in a very public way, but was incredibly difficult to deal with as a private person who knew these folks. You know who 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 learned this through the news in the same way the rest of the world learns it. So, you know, it's a series of things that ended up being the inspiration. But for sure, the actual event of that flight. Mm.
0: Did you know early on that this is going to be it's going to be a sister story? Who sh- did did that piece of the of the plot? Was that early, or did you kind of work yourself into that space? So
1: Jen, I don't really
0: outline which. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> I, I say, you're po- poet. I say, no, you're free <laughs> spirit. It means I am often discovering things as I'm going. And so I went yeah. in and I'm like, okay, I know that she's going to find out her father had a secret family. Initially it was a brother who lived with, with his mom and it was a very different kind of family setup. and writing it. And that was the whole first draft. And when I went back in, I, I knew like, oh no, it has to be a sister and we have to get her point of view. And so that was when, when Camino came up, but it was a, it was a happy discovery. You oh know? Was, my gosh. It was seeing the parallels I had set up that I wasn't even aware I had set up within the women, within the friends. And so plotting it to kind of be like, Oh, let's actually make this a story about juxtapositions and worlds who otherwise could have had very similar lives, but, but are having starkly different experiences. I am so happy
0: that that, discovery came to, I can't imagine it without Camino. I just can't, I can't even, I can't even get a, a picture in my head because, you know, you also walked us through the plight of being a girl, particularly in her setting. And with that just constant fear, I was so worried for her the whole time. I was so worried about her safety. I was so, he was just closing in on her and, and a boy would have had a different experience there. It just, we wouldn't have gotten to explore that. And if for us as your readers, of course, as you know, unfortunately that's relatable to a ton of us, you know, that is a common female experience to sort of be disposable and at risk and harmed. And so was that part hard for you to write? I'm curious because of course you love her and now we've got her in danger. And so I'm, I'm curious if you kind of had to do some internal heavy lifting to, to sort of put her in harm's way.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it was a, a real balancing act of how much am I going to allow to happen? based off of what I know happens, how much am I going to to kind of step in in order to not only protect my character, but to to safeguard my reader, right? That that there is a way to get across the danger, the very real, this probably does it does happen. The Dominican Republic is one of the top in terms of sex tourism and it where people of means go to live out all kinds of sexual fantasy at the expense of young people, right? Honestly, or of people who are coerced. And that's not to say anything about sex work. I'm talking specifically about minors who who aren't always consenting, who are in dire situations and think this is the option, right, are groomed. And so for me to know, this feels really important to talk about. There's, there is a level of femicide happening in the Dominican Republic that is not talked about. There is a level of sex work and sex trafficking that is not talked about and as someone who loves my country, loves my people, loves the young women and young people I've worked with there, done workshops with, have taught poetry to, to also know the kinds of pressures that they feel. It felt like yeah, Dominicans probably don't want me talking about this. It doesn't look like the the island fantasy that we often try to sell to tourists but like this is real and like you know, I have this, thankfully, this voice in this platform and it, it just felt critical, you know? And so I, I put her in this danger, but I, I also know in my heart, like, I'm, I know when I'll pull back. I want it to be very clear what the danger is, but, but I want to also ensure I'm not, you know, exploiting this harm for like, to, to titillate readers. Like that's, that's not it.
0: I'm grateful. I'm grateful for your restraint there. Cause you did bring us all the way there all the way to the edge. I was like going down swinging. Like I actually loved that scene. I have goosebumps just thinking about it when the women writing that scene, (laughs) I just have goosebumps the the women, when they converged, I cried. It was powerful. I want to talk about the women because I love them all for different reasons all of them. I love them all. Very very strikingly different. <laughs> oh, the wildly Tia, I love her and her sort of stoic way it just and her stepping in as really the mother, you know, figure of course. And I love Yahira's mom for different reasons too. And I love Dre. I just your cast of women were special. I love that it was their story. And the men mattered, they were in it obviously as these connective tissues or or as an outside danger, but this was the women, the women got to to tell their stories and I loved it. So I'd love to hear you talk about the, the moms and aunts and what you love about them. And if you did, and maybe you didn't, but if you modeled them, on anybody that's beloved to you or maybe an
1: amalgamation of women? Yeah, this was a book where I went in and I had a little bit of an idea of the theme and it was like, this father figure is never going to be seen on the page, but he's always going to haunt the book. And he's going to haunt all of the characters. They all have a relationship that he altered the course of their life and he's no longer here, but but we're seeing the aftermath. Right. And almost all of the men play these very present absent roles. They're there, they're not. They're there. They disappear. They're there. They're, the fear of them, I mean they're not being there is present, but but the physicality not so much. So the women we're watching them have to step in for each other, protect each other, love each other, warn each other, hurt each other. It feels critical to me to like show human. They're deeply flawed. Even Thea, who I think is, you know, probably the closest to perfection <laughs> that I could write an adult who, like, knows just enough rope to give Camino and when to step back. And even she, you know, in trying to protect her, doesn't always make the space for Camino to be honest and to disclose. So I'm trying to show the way that we we have to hold each other and, like... What it means that we're always learning what that what that looks like, and so what do I love? I love Zoila's vindictiveness. Like I kind of love that she was, she used what tools she had to to communicate. She wasn't happy with the situation, right? And it may have been passive aggressive. It may have been considered weak for some people, but to me, it felt like she wants this family. She wants this man, and and she, and she also wants to protect her kid. And I I felt that. Right? I thought that was honest and I also felt thea who was very much like I have my purpose and my purpose is here and my purpose is with what I believe and and my my faith and that guides me and, and that's first and foremost yeah clearly is just I adore her because she reminds me of a lot of my my former students in that she's kind of like I don't know what I want to do like i like um I just want to be I want to like and I want to do it on my own time she's so patient right she's with her girlfriend, she's patient with her mom, but most importantly I felt she was so patient with herself. Like I do things a lot of time and I'm okay with that. That felt like such a great quality to have in a teen character. And then Camino for me is just like ferocious. I just, (laughs) she was, you know, she had the the fierceness that I hope for every young woman, just this level of tenacity go gettedness and uh, savvy. Absolutely. Like a, I loved to, her. Yeah. That just felt really, really true and, and felt entirely like it, it came from something else. You know, I, I don't like it woo woo or like I'm over here channeling, but that character in many ways arrived almost fully formed. And I'm just like, oh, oh, snap. Like, okay, I got you, girl. I'm scared of you to like, I want to be written.
0: <laughs> I just love when novelists talk about their characters like this, when you just essentially just have to tell her story, like she's there formed and you were literally channeling her. Great stories are powerful, right? That's why I love this podcast. We get to hear people from all, all walks of life, talking about their obstacles and their wins. And you know another place we get to do that? The Jen Hatmaker Book Club. And I want you to join today because if you love this podcast, you're going to love the book club. Here's the deal. Each month, we'll dive into a fantastic book and we read all kinds of stuff, fiction, memoirs, self-help, all of it. Every single book is something I have read and loved. And I just know you will too. After you sign up, every month, I'll send you a box with the book and other fun treats. Plus, your membership comes with a whole slew of perks. You get resources like reading plans, weekly summaries, discussion questions. Plus, you get tons of exclusive community stuff. You get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with me and all your fellow members. And there's a monthly Facebook live chat session with me and sometimes some surprise guests. Sometimes I pop into the Zoom meetings of our local chapters, which is always delightful. Plus, we do some cool stuff with the book's author. They curate these awesome Spotify playlists just for us. Plus, I record a podcast with the author or another special guest, and we talk about the book. It is an incredible way to cap it all off. And you know what makes a book club great? The people. This community is the kindest, most supportive group you can possibly imagine. So sign up today at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We are here waiting to welcome you into the sisterhood with open arms. So join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com today. Okay, back to our show. I also want to talk about you know, our landscapes here. So we have DR, we have New York, like the the geography was each almost their own character. It mattered so much. It mattered so, 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 so much to the story, where they lived and what the culture there was and what the social norms were in each place. And then of course, just the geographical distance. And so you obviously have firsthand experience, in writing both of those places, how was that for you as a writer? I just would love to hear you talk a little bit about where you've placed the girls and what that was like for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think when I look back and I consider that I attempted to write this only from Yairo's point of view, there was a real fear in writing the Dominican Republic, right? And not getting it right in. in being Dominican American, mostly, you know, raised here, although I go back really often, especially almost every summer from the time I was, you know, nine until 19. And so there was an understanding I had, but I'm very aware that my understanding is as a visitor, as someone who came for a few months and left. I'm not my cousins who were in the fabric of the island in a way that was very different. So there was a fear that I, I wouldn't, be able to, to precisely depict or respectfully depict the nuance of a place that is a paradise and also incredibly complicated. But, but in some ways, that that brought up that made me a little more honest. That fear was good. It made sure that I was thoughtful and and really accurate, and that I got my cousins to read it in advance, and and that I, you know, was thoughtful about depicting the the sweetness of the Dominican Republic, the joy, the music of it, um, in addition to these really hard topics. But I, you know, I, I really just set out to do exactly what you described. To me, the scene is a character. It is a, a pressure on the lives. And to show, again, this kind of parallel of where these girls were raised fundamentally changes what they perceive to be the, the urgency of, of college, the urgency of adulthood, urgency of discovering their womanhood before someone else discovers it for them, right? Like that there's a little bit of, of that at play. And it's because of how they're observing the world and, and the way the world they know observes them. That's that when you look at Camino and it's like, well, the neighbors are saying, and, and this is what this means for us as a family, for you to doing this thing. And then when you look at Yahira and, you know, her queerness and, and the ways in which she, she does or doesn't perform that, that there's a sense of, oh, okay, you have agency because maybe things are a little different in New York and yet in your neighborhood, maybe not so much so that she's fluid in different ways. And and so yeah, the landscape, I think, is a huge part of how I navigate crafting these characters because it does have an influence. I, I do think where we are from. Marxist.
0: It sure does. I appreciated how you wrote Yahira's sexuality, the way in which you wrote her story, as a lot of times I think when characters are queer, that is the center spoke of their story. That's where they experience shame or it's where they experience rejection or they don't get to be quite as multifaceted as I would like them to be because they just have to be the queer character. And that's how the story revolves around them. But that's really not how you wrote her at all. It got to be her, just who she was without a lot of fuss and fanfare, without a lot of drama or or heartache. And I actually loved that. And I, I loved that she got to be complicated and complex and her sexuality just being one, one of the spokes in her wheel, not the entire. Did you know early on that you wanted to hand Yahira like a, a queer identity? As again to your really good point that you just made, as another way to sort of juxtapose privilege based on location and geography and because I thought that was just one more way she had agency like you said she got to have agency where you know had that been Camino's identity she certainly would not
1: have you know I have queer characters in, in all of my books and when I initially wrote this one, Yahira had a little boo named Manny who was also a, a chess player who she was molly whopping across the board, right? And so he loved that she could beat him. And as I continued writing it, it just, I felt like, you know, I think this, I'm I'm leaning on a crutch that I have of a particular kind of romance. Once I sat back and really sat with the character and, and, and just jotted down notes and journaled, like in regards to the character, it really came through that, like maybe there's another story here. Maybe there are different kinds of secrets that Yahira keeps that aren't the same kind as Camino, but, and maybe not even secrets per se, but that this is a character who is really thoughtful and feels deeply. And I don't, I don't know if I'm giving her her just due by, by going with the easiest choices. And in that moment, it was a realization of like, well, it actually might be harder to talk about maybe a character who is queer and has and is in love with her like middle school girlfriend, and it's also this like girl next door story, and that maybe it's unclear what her parents think or feel or how they support or don't support, and what that does or doesn't mean for her. That it, it it's not neat. I was intrigued by that. I cannot bring up hard questions without neat answers, and when she produces, you know, Camino via FaceTime to her girlfriend. There is a little apprehension. There is a little bit of, I, I don't know. And even Camino recognizes, like, hey, this is culturally not what we allow to be open. And and so, like, yeah. letting that be the conversation felt a lot more compelling and interesting than than some of the the choices that I think were again crutches.
0: Yeah, that's great. I it's always fascinating to hear what winds up on the author's cutting room floor, a character that maybe you wrote in originally and they completely were absent in the final product. And that's always just really, really interesting. And I always applaud you for it because that level of editing, of pivoting, It's so hard. You wrote so many words, I'm sure, around him and his chest. And like, <laughs> you'd, you'd already gone down the trail. And so I'm always proud of authors when they're like, no, it's not right. And you just cut it. Oh, kill the darlings. And I want to ask you this. And then I'm going to end with a handful of questions from the the book club because your book has just ignited a million conversations in our community in a wonderful way. It's a, it is a great conversation starter. So I'd like to hear just from your experience, what it has been like for you to be such a beloved YA author, because, so first of all, my book club's grown women. This is our first YA novel I've ever chosen. YA is underrated it's uh, why aren't we all reading it? I, I don't understand why this gets its own shelf outside of the adults. I'm like, this should be in my section. So talk to me about being a YA author, because you just get the delightful privilege of now hearing from teen readers and young adult readers, and they are the best readers. They're open and curious and loyal. They must love you. They must love you to shreds. Are you just like drowning in
1: teen and young adult praise? Oh, I'm really lucky. You know, I've I worked with young people for the majority of my adulthood. I was a school eighth grade English teacher. I was the head coach for the DC Poetry Slam team for young people, for over four years. And so I've got to work really closely with the most creative, interesting, brilliant young people. And I get to, you know, hear them speak and hear their feelings and hear the things they're afraid to say to other adults, but that they can say through poems or they can say through creative. And so I've been incredibly privileged that that I, I, you know, started writing for this audience and had a little bit of an ear, you know, for how they speak. The things they feel, but there's a, a tenderness that I approach writing for young people that's very different than when I'm writing for adults. There's a part of me that is always mindful of offering hope, of of maybe safe safeguarding them a little bit. You know, I my novels are never like are are not euphoria, and that's not because I don't think euphoria is brilliant. It's because there is a level of of protectiveness that I feel, and I think my readers feel that. Like, oh, I, she's honest. She's real she's gonna cuss a little bit she's gonna like talk about how you know the the realness of what's happening but but I'm okay here I'm loved enough that I know this this person isn't gonna let me you know it's not just gonna let me fall and I think that's how I approach the writing like i'm I'm unflinchingly honest but I'm also thoughtful of like the mindset of of thirteen to 18 year olds and what is that play and the feelings they have at play, right? And I will say also that it's been fascinating to learn that 40% of the readers of YA are grown women, right? So you are writing in an age group that that also includes <laughs> a lot of readers, not of that age group. It has been really great to receive emails and letters from moms who are like, I saw my daughter, I saw my kid doing this, and they were really into it, and then they asked me to read it. My books are a lot about mothers and daughters and, and the relationship between parents and children and what it means for parents girl, and young people to, to, to do teaching sometimes, right? So I think there's this intergenerational thing happening with my books that I most moved by. Like, that's what I, and a mom is like, we're having a two-person book club and it's just us two discussing all the hard things that we maybe couldn't discuss, but now we have a text that helps us navigate. And so, you know, there's there's just there's a lot of really cool things writing for, for, for the audience I'm writing for. I've just been really lucky, you know, like not everyone has this kind of career and, and this moment that is so open to new kinds of readings. So.
0: Listen, let's get it straight. You're not just lucky. You are insanely gifted. Your gift is special. It's original you are unique in a, in the field. Your talent is unmistakable. And so this is deserved. This is earned. You've earned it by affirmations. Yes. (laughs) You've earned it. You deserve every bit of this. You deserve every award, every accolade. I deeply appreciate your care of your reader. That, that means a lot to me. I appreciate how you protected Camino for us. I appreciated the ending. It was so, I mean, I just, tears just coming down my face. I just, that's exactly how I wanted it to end. And it was so hopeful and restorative and, Of course, you still left it. There could be more. If you decide to carry on with the characters, there's more. I'm not telling you what to do, but I am just saying I'd like to know what happens up in New York. Is there any chance?
1: Is there any chance you're not done with these girls? So I am currently working on the pilot episode for what would be the TV adaptation. And so there are possibilities that at least at the level maybe we will get more, more story and more insight. I, I don't know if I plan a sequel and I don't plan sequels for any of my books, but potentially in the, the visual realm, maybe. Wow. That'd that is so, <laughs> that is so exciting. It's been so exciting. It's been cool to kind of dive back in. And and I love having these conversations because I can hear what people are moved by and what they love about characters. And I'm taking notes like, okay, I can do this and this. And this. so you know, that would be really, really fun. But no book, no book sequel. Okay. Well, this is a whole new thing because
0: who would you love? Let's just say you get to make the choices and nobody has any saying except for you. Like, who would you love? Do you have any ideas on casting? Who would you love to see cast in either role or anybody, really anybody in the whole book? Do you have, do you have, are you thinking this person would be like a dream cast?
1: Have you seen the movie Moxie on Netflix. Yeah. 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 So do you know the young woman? Her name is Alicia Garz, Garcia, Hyphenated. I don't remember the full name, but she's a young woman with the long braids who kind of comes in super feisty, like very... I am obsessed with her. I think she's brilliant. And so I could totally see her as Yahaira. But I don't know. I mean, one of the things that I kind of confront with a lot of the fact, like with my books being adapted, is that there haven't been a lot of Afro-Latina teens we've seen in, the, in, you know, in TV and film. And so I keep hitting a wall in the fact that like there are folks coming up now, but it would really be, I think, an effort of finding and, and folks who may not have the same resources as the typical person in Hollywood. And so I'm often told, maybe this person, this person, I'm like, those would be great, but they are, they're already here. And I think that the young women I would need to pick this story may not be here yet you right. You would, in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, let's, I would discover I, I'm, her. Uh, yes, I think she's amazing. I want to cast her for everything. Right. <laughs> no, manifest her. that. We're going to manifest week. that for you.
0: <laughs> I'm so interested right now in elevating and celebrating good things. So, community, I'd like to introduce you to Abel. If you're not familiar with Able, they are an ethical fashion brand that employs and empowers women as a solution to end poverty. (laughs) Love. They're deeply devoted also to quality, both in the products they make and in the quality of life they aim to provide. So they invest in, train, and educate women so they can earn a living, break the cycle of poverty, and thrive. And would you believe it all started with scarves for them? In Ethiopia, they met women coming out of the commercial sex industry who asked for help finding jobs. So they trained them to make scarves. And after selling over 4,000 of them in two months, they knew they were onto something. And now, Abel has grown from hand woven scarves to a whole lifestyle brand with leather bags and clothes, shoes, jewelry, and more. I have so much of their stuff that I wear on constant. Rotation. I cannot say enough good things about Able. Truly, come check them out for the cause and their incredible business practices and stay for the fashion. You can get 20% off site-wide with my code 20GEN at livefashionable.com. So that's 20GEN at livefashionable.com. I've got a couple of questions for you from book club. This is from Christy Velasquez. So she said, I love the rituals you wrote about on the Dominican side, the saints, the beads, drum circles, medicine, women, meals for certain occasions, even clapping when you land. It made me wonder about how rituals can help connections. I'm wondering if you have any rituals that help you with connecting to others, ancestors, the past, or your audience.
1: Yes, you know, one of the things that came up for me during the stay at home for the past year and some change is I've, I had to stop, right? For years, i had been touring. I do about, maybe I was doing 100 to 150 presentations a year. And so I've gone a lot and was raised extremely Catholic and had moved away from from my faith in my early college years, but never put something there. And so I'm on the road. I'm giving of myself a lot to strangers. I didn't have a very grounded spirituality and I felt it, right? And so when everything kind of stopped, I realized, oh, now's my time to really start exploring who I am and what my connection to whatever is greater can be. And so in the morning, I do the Lotus Sutra. So I do Buddhist chanting for about 10 to 15 minutes. I do about five to 10 minutes of affirmations that I've written and that I continuously write depending on what... I need and what I'm what my script in myself is and, and what I'm trying to either counter in my beliefs or expand on in my beliefs. And I do, you know, I, I pray to my ancestors and it's been fascinating what what try just speaking to them, just putting out a glass of water, lighting a candle, lighting incense, and like, hey, like here are the, the people I know. And I started with my grandfather and my grandmother on my dad's side. And then I started asking questions. What about this aunt who I remember? Like, what does she pass up and what was her name? What about this person and this person? So my list has grown because of this individual practice, but now I'm learning almost this oral history of, of, of where my family comes from and, and who my dad held precious and who my mom held precious. And, what it might mean to have these folks as as guardians. And so there is that happening. And then I have my basic, you know, when I am just having a really hard day and really struggling and and what I, I know I need, I have my like rules for myself. So on the worst days, I'm like, you have to drink a cup of water. You have to eat your fresh piece of fruit or vegetable. You have to go outside for at least two minutes, even if it's on the balcony, and you have to call someone you love. And those are like the ways I care. And it's like, if you do nothing else today, if you feel like a total failure, but you do these five things, you won, you won, you did, you showed up. And so it's been a great way to like, I have my bare minimum of how I connect, right? Which is with food, with family, like I I will do these things. And then I have my kind of higher you know, when I really show up on my yoga mat and I'm doing a deep 30 minute prayer and, and affirmations and all of this. So I've given myself a lot of room to practice the things that that fill me up and, and make it, you know, I'm, I'm constantly making it and I'm okay with that. Like it's changing, mind, but yeah, re- feeling really nourished.
0: Mm, I love those practices. I love that you've done a deep dive into your own ancestors. Like person by person, and you're just building your knowledge of your own family. That's inspiring to me. Here's a question from Amanda Gerald, and this is interesting. I'll be interested to hear what you say. She said, when Camino first started to learn of Yahira." she seemed so much more ready to handle the emotional complexities that would come along with this knowledge in such a relationship. But as the two girls began talking, it is immediately clear that Yahira is much more emotionally stable than I ever gave her credit as being. Was I just missing something all along when it came to Yahira,
1: or was this intentional? Oh, I think for me, Yahira was always steady and you see it in how she kind of jumps into the role of taking care of her mom and how she's concerned about like we shouldn't be spending money we don't have yet we shouldn't be giving money away to family like she she is with someone who is emotionally going through a lot and there's there's a volatility that requires her to be more restrained And even at the level of having been someone who trained to in a sport that is entirely thinking where you win by having better thoughts, right? Like that is what chess is. You are a more strategic person. You can see ahead. There's, I think, a level of your higher that was always thinking of the next move, right? For me, Camino is a little bit more of um, a loose cannon and also I think was at the level of her needs being met, was having less needs met. And, and you very viscerally, like my sister who does not need as much has so much more. And it's about to get so much more. And I think that brings up a lot, right? Like, I, I love you. And I I think you're my sister, I think. And I want this connection. I can't believe I have family. And also, like, wait, so these sneakers I have on my feet were first your sneakers? And you had my dad for nine months while I only had him for three. And I got to look at your smiling. And you're, you dare ask me for anything? Like, I think then, at least when I was thinking of all the questions, all the things she would have, like it made sense that she, yeah, isn't, isn't fully aware of all the things that are going to come up with with reaching out, with inviting Yahira into her life. And Yahira, who's like, I've always wanted to go to DR, always wanted, I, I think can be more, offer more grace because she just has more of her needs met. Yeah, she's not as volatile. But I don't know. I guess I could see how people read You know Camino is so stoic in the face of so much horror that it's easy to be like okay, but she's she's steady.
0: Yeah, that's a great description. I that you're right. That is how I experienced the both girls. And you just gave us a lot to love. Even like toward the end, I was so thankful when Yahira's mom was generous and kind toward Camino. Ugh, I was so happy when we got to those pages and she tended to her and she spoke directly to her about what she wishes were different. And I was thrilled to see her be a good grown-up to both girls. Like, yeah, you did it. Okay. Wrapping it up here. Two last questions. Here's the first one. What are you reading right now? Like, what are, you, what are you loving? Who are you loving? Do you have an author or a book that you loved this summer or something you'd like to recommend to us? Because we're all
1: obviously readers. I'm in the middle of Breathe by Imani Perry. She is a historian from the South. I mean, she wrote this memoir about, or I guess for her two sons. And so it's very much in the vein of Baldwin, right? His letter to his nephew, The Fire This Time, but also... Expands beyond that, and and is a mother perspective. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I love I love Monty Perry's. I finished *The Secret Lives of Church Ladies* by Deisha Filial. Oh, Ooh. cute! I don't know it. Best thing I have read in I don't know how long. I I'm mean, gonna write it down. It, and you want to talk about a book club book? Like I gave it to my mother-in-law. I was like, call me as soon as you're done. Like my husband read it before me. He's like, Liz, you got to read this right now. Oh yay! Brilliant! Oh, I can't wait. I cannot, I cannot say enough. And then Naïma Costers, "What's Mine and Yours," which was just the, you know just such a beautiful book, so tightly plotted, also characters, which I'm always interested in how people pull that off, but I think she just is so talented. Oh, good list. I will link all
0: those for the book club. And then finally, because you did mention that you you usually have your hand in two things at once. What are you working on? Like what's next? What's percolating up here in
1: your brain? So I am working on the, the outline and pilot for Clap When You Land. I'm working on the movie adaptation of With the Fire on High, which is my second novel. And I'm working right first adult novel, which was picked up by Echo at HarperCollins, and should be coming out in 2023. So the grown-ups will be getting something specifically for them, and that's a wealthy point of view. Also, New York and the Dominican Republic spanning a lot of time. So it's um, three of the characters are 70-year-old Dominican immigrants, and um, two of the characters are their their children, like the children, the next generation born and raised in New York. So you know, I'm talking to my mom and my aunties and we're talking about menopause and we're talking about like how we learned about sexuality and love and courtship. And I am, I'm really, really into this book. So hooray, as you see, even if you don't write a
0: dedicated book for us adults, we'll just go to you. We'll just go get your white Hey, books. we don't care.
1: Oh, appreciate it. We don't care.
0: (laughs) Well, listen, I just want you to know that we are such Happy, delighted readers of yours. you've got a whole thousands of us now. we're just we love you, we absolutely admire and are in awe of your special brand of writing and your gift in the world and I'll just tell you this: whatever you write for the rest of your life, we're here to read it. So sign us
1: up. give us our adult book. we'll read that too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I so appreciate you I so appreciate all the readers diving into something a little different. Thanks for me and for, you know, rolling with the book. Uh, We
0: absolutely loved it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time. It means the world to our little community. And we are, it's so special for us to always get to meet our authors because we love you. We love your, the people you gave us in your story. And just getting to hear you talk about a book that we've cherished together is always so special. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Have a great day. You as well, Jen. Thanks so much.